Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Good news for shoppers as Tesco drops supermarket prices. The government thinks that others will follow. Uh, this is an unavoidable cost uh, for individuals and families all over Ireland and will most likely trigger a response by uh, other market uh, participants. We are live in Ukraine as the country struggles following that dramatic dam collapse. And why is New York City covered in an orange smoke? We'll talk about that and the other stories that cut our eye this week. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Shoppers have been hit hard in the last year with grocery inflation rising much higher than other metrics. But today came some good news. Tesco says it's cutting hundreds of product prices with other supermarkets expected to follow suit. But is it all good news? And what about those at the beginning of the food cycle, like farmers? Well, let's get more on this. I'm joined by Hugh O'Connell, Deputy Political Editor of the Irish Independent, Senator Malcolm Byrne of Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin TD, Kathleen Funchen. Damien O'Reilly, Senior Lecturer in Retail Management at the Technological University in Dublin. And I am joined on Skype tonight by Eddie Punch, General Secretary of the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association. You're all very welcome along uh, to the programme tonight. Damien, I want to come to you first. This is your area of expertise. Um, Everyone, I think, is very happy to see this news. I mean, great PR spin from Tesco as well, it must be said, to see these uh, 700 separate price drops uh, in in their stores. What sort of impact will it have on that final shopping bill that you're paying? It's going to have a significant impact if you're buying in those 700 items. Now, you've got to take into account that Tesco, probably in their bigger stores, are carrying 15,000 products. So it's, it's kind of a small proportion of those. But they are in the household area. They are in the fresh produce area. They are in the frozen food area, in the pet food area. So... You know, things that are commonly bought, uh, FMCG or fast-moving consumer goods, as they're called. So will have a significant impact. And it's, it's a move in the right direction. But it's down to input costs. So if you, if you talk to the retailers, they know that a tin of beans, for example, the product within that, the beans are grown maybe or sown maybe six months or a year ago. So the farmer or whoever is processing those um, has input costs at that period of time. So they don't arrive on the shelf like they're not made yesterday. So, so, you know, they arrive on the shelf um, and the price is already negotiated for what the price is going to be today. So the input costs from six months ago have declined. As you know, the energy costs have come down, wages have stabilised um, and the environment, the political environment seems to have stabilised in the, well, we're coping with the war in the Ukraine. And so that's led to the price decreases. Now, what Tesco have probably done is they've negotiated probably, you know, usually on a six-month, a three- to six-month basis, they negotiate prices with suppliers. 
So they would have known that some of these prices were going to be coming in at a lower price and they could reduce these prices. So that's what they've seen in their latest negotiations in the past the, month or so. They've seen that yes, drop and yeah. they said, OK, now, now we're going to pass it on to customers. Well, they, they, they will also have be looking to the future and saying, you know, negotiations in the future, in the next coming months, that they brought those forward, I would mm. suspect, to have 700 items. So they've come with a big bang effect. Yeah, I mean, the big question about all of this is tonight, what, what are other retailers going to do? Because we've already had, you know, Aldi and Lidl saying they're already cheaper and they won't be responding. I mean, are we likely, though, typically to see a knock-on effect across, you know, all the, all the yes. big five, as yeah. they say, Ab supermarket absolutely. chains? Absolutely. You, you know, Lidl and Aldi both said that they, they give cheaper prices uh, than, than, uh, than Tesco. Um, and Tesco would refute that, saying that they match Aldi's prices on a range of around 2,000 products that, uh, that Aldi and Lidl keep. So, um, you know, it, that's up for debate because it's very difficult to make comparisons when you've got different types of own brands to make comparisons on prices. OK, but they're likely, obviously, the, the, way, the, the way we now know with this supermarket well, price the, monitoring, yeah, um, that they, we'll they see them quickly around, pick up on who's offering good value. Well, they, they monitor around 20,000 prices uh, a week, each of the big retailers. And the likes of SuperValue and the likes of Dunn's will have to match whatever they're doing or, you know, in the long term, they will lose, start to lose market share. Yeah, Hugh, it's very welcome news um, and a good news story, as we said, all round. And we take it that government will be taking a very positive spin on all of this, that the price drops come after this gathering of the, the retail yeah. forum in which the government urged retailers to pull down their prices and they'll say that has paid dividends. Uh, did it have any influence here, do you think? I don't think so. And I mean, I think Damien explained that pretty well. Like, I mean, this is because input costs have been coming down um, and this was always likely to happen. I think the retailers kind of flagged that at the time when we first had the, the price drops of bread and milk uh, and butter as well. Uh, that, you know, because their input costs had been coming down, that there would be further price reductions announced. I mean, Tesco is gone, as you say, with the big bang approach, good PR move from them. A lot of people talking about it today. We're talking about it tonight. Uh, but I don't think anyone's kind of saying it's because the government's convened the retail forum uh, last month uh, that, that that had the effect. Um, you know, the government gave, there was a lot of big talk from the Minister of State at the time, Neil Richmond, about price caps potentially. Uh, none of that had obviously transpired. There was no firm commitment from the retailers to reduce their prices. But what they said was that when their input costs came down, yeah. they would pass it on, the con on to the consumers. And that's exactly what's happened yeah. here. And that's what we actually talked about, I think, on the very night in question with, the, with our panel in studio. They were saying this is naturally the prices are coming down anyway. And what the government have very cleverly done is call the retailers in to ask them to do what they were already going to do. Well, I think the important thing is that prices are now coming down. Um, there is a real. So you're not you're not backslapping too not, much over no, this I, one. I, I, I don't I don't I don't think so because I think Jim did explain quite well. I mean, ultimately, government's concern is around the punter in the shop, and I know I meet people in my local supermarket over the last year who've been talking about mm. the increases in the cost of living, as does everybody else. We know, particularly for those on lower fixed incomes, it's a real challenge. The important thing in terms of what government can do um, is that you know when it's coming up to the budget is that we don't introduce any further measures that will re result in stoking inflation in any way, that we look at ways in which the cost of living can be further reduced. There were measures that were introduced in the budget last year that helped people with the cost of living. And in the budgetary preparations, mm -hmm. and I know, you know from listening to Michael McGrath, um, that's what he's very much focused on. Um, but I think certainly what Tesco has done today is very welcome. It is good PR for them. Uh, I fully expect that you will see the other supermarkets looking to match it because I know 
consumers will shop around. Uh, and if they know that, you know, one, uh, one supermarket is offering certain products that they like at much better value, they're going to go and buy there. And I hope that we do start to see that price war. It is important, though, that that's not at the expense of the producer uh, as well, because while we have seen supermarkets increase prices significantly, the producer has not benefited to the same yeah, extent. And we, will, we will talk uh, to a producer in, in one moment. Kathleen, um, first, though, you know, consumers have been crying, really crying out for this. Is there anything more that you would like to see? We are seeing uh, retailers maybe not responding to consumer calls here, but certainly doing it in line with what they're negotiating behind the scenes. Yeah, so first of all, I, I do welcome it because I think that's kind of the initial reaction. I mean, everybody has been really struggling um, with the cost of living and actually the, the Children's, Rights, Children's Rights Alliance today published their poverty monitor about the amount of children that are living in poverty. And we know food poverty is a huge part mm -hmm. to that because when costs get really tight on a family, the one thing they can control, you can't obviously control your rent or, or your electricity bills, but you can control what you're spending on food and people cut back when they shouldn't be. So it is welcome. But when you then look at the amount of consistent poverty amongst children, it's the equivalent actually to the populations of Kilkenny and Waterford. So it's a small, it's a very small measure in one way. When you look at the kind of wider picture, your initial reaction, I think, is to say this is welcome because it is. But at the same time, we need to do far more. And I think we need to see a lot more transparency around the profits from supermarkets. And in fairness, the Labour Party actually have a bill coming up in relation to that where it would be mandatory to publish um, the, the profits that, that supermarkets are making so that we can actually see is there is there sort of an issue and a difficulty around that because we don't want, as Malcolm said, to have uh, the producers paying a price in relation okay. to this. But we actually need to, to see exactly what's going what, on. And what I think prof we, what profits are being made. Because exactly. We, we, we don't we actually don't have a picture of that in this country. Will you be supporting then that Labour bill? We, we will be supporting that, yes, we will okay. when, when it comes forward. Uh, and just to say really briefly as well that I know the European Central Bank um, back in March flagged this up that there was potentially some issue around this where super, some supermarkets were saying they were nearly masking the, the, the price increases in inflation, saying it's because of inflation when there potentially was profiteering going on. So I think it's really important that we have that. And in other countries we've seen where there, where supermarkets are being encouraged to get like an everyday essential basket of, of groceries and bring it down. Price. bring it down to a, to a reasonable price because while it is welcome today for a lot of families they're still going to be struggling it's, it's very very minor and it's one supermarket I yes. know we expect others to follow sure. but it is just and, one and, and Malcolm just to come back briefly on that I mean this is as say um, you know one major supermarket making that decision choosing the products they want uh, to reduce and you know it's in their control but do we need to see uh, more transparency? Is that something that would you, would like, you know, do you think government should be supporting uh, that, that Labour bill, that bill from across the house that is saying, we want to see the profits these supermarkets are making. You can see them in the UK. Why, can't, why don't we have that same level of transparency here? So I, I, I think one of the things is in, in, when it comes to any evidence of price gouging, uh, the Consumer and Competition Protection uh, Commission has a very important role. It has been carrying out a certain number of investigations. It has been allocated additional staff uh, to engage in some of that. What the supermarkets will say, and I'm not here to speak on their behalf, is there are obviously commercial sensitivities that apply there, but in principle... What are the sensitivities on, on, that apply um, well, I, that in, apply here that don't apply no. in the UK? But in, 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 in print, in what I was saying is that in principle, I think that we should know uh, exactly the type of profits and margins that supermarkets are, are making. Now, obviously, when they're engaging in commercial dealing, you know, that... If it's, if it's open for all their rivals to see, you won't be able to necessarily see 
the kind of deals that Tesco were able to enter into. So you've got to ensure that you can continue to allow competition in, in the sector uh, as well. I think what is important uh, is um, that we continue to support competition and that any other measures that government can take to reduce inflation, uh, that they will continue. I mean, so, the other. Sorry, would you be supportive of that? Like, I mean, do you, do you think there is support around transparency? I'm asking that because um, Simon Coveney, you know, did talk about, you know, price structures needing to be made more transparent. And then he went quite quiet on, well, on that. Well, well, well the, the, I, I certainly think that there is a need for great transparency because if you look at, for instance, the price of milk, um, and anyone will talk about the fact that, you know, the price of a litre of milk has over the last mm. year, depending on, on where you shop, but increased by 50 to 60 uh, cent and more in, in some cases. And yet at the same time, you're certainly, if you're talking to the farmer at the farm gate, uh, he or she is not getting, you know, that level of an increase. I get that supermarkets yeah. have increased labour costs, increased transport costs and increased input costs but certainly not at the level okay. that we, we've seen All right. uh, in um, increased we, cuts. OK, we, did, we talked about um, producers and I suppose the impact on, uh, of price cuts um, on the likes of farmers. Um, on this one, um, we're going to bring in Eddie Punch uh, now from the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association. Eddie, thanks for joining us on the programme. If prices are coming down, I suppose people might ask the question, who's taking the hit? I'm sure everyone will welcome it in their pockets, um, especially when they're seeing the bills uh, at, the, at the checkout at the moment. But what are your concerns when you, we are seeing the price reductions across the chilled meats aisle, for example? Yeah, and farmers are you know, householders as well, and they, ha they are confronted with the cost of living crisis. Uh, but it is important to point out that, for example, beef has been very static in price for many years now. And even though the costs for farmers went through the roof in recent years, an example, uh, fertilizer in 2023, in March 2023, was 870 a tonne. In March 21, it was 370 a tonne. That's a real, real massive increase in costs for farmers. Um, and yet when you look at the, you know, did farmers benefit from increased prices? Yes, they went up, but not to the cost of production. Uh, you can get two steaks tonight at Tesco for 10 euros, two fillet steaks. You can get two ribeye for eight euros. That price was the same price that consumers were paying three, four years ago. So there isn't really that scope for to cut, for example, beef. Now, milk price, uh, a lot of talk about a 10 cent a litre cut in milk price, uh, but toothpaste, 100 euros per litre. Uh, if you look at toilet rolls, as I said, two steaks for a tenner, 16 toilet rolls, a tenner as well. Do you think so I think it's really important yeah. that we don't have farmers bearing the brunt this PR campaign. Do you think That's we in ICFA have asked Tesco for a meeting because we have to have sustainable prices for farmers. So do you think you're going to see that as a consequence of price drops? Do you think it is going to impact you Already on, on what, what you're getting paid for your produce? Already there's pressure on beef price and farmers are very unhappy about it because, you know, Chagas says beef price to farmers should be at least six euros to cover our winter finishing costs. Uh, and at the moment we're being pulled back towards five euros per kilo. Okay. Um, the sheep sector, worst again, um, the price is actually lower for the last nine months 
than for the previous uh, nine months in 2021. And sheep farmers have really felt they've got no recognition of their increased costs. Um, so they can see how they can now, uh, you know, be the, the, the victims, if you like, of a government or retail or PR campaign All right. prices. Okay. We've got to focus on products that there is lots of scope to cut prices in. And those are generally products made by large multinationals like toothpaste, okay. like cut, uh, cut the price, cosmetics. So cut the prices elsewhere, but not uh, perhaps in the chilled uh, meats aisle. Damien, what would you say to that? Do farmers have a point that if supermarkets choose to do this, you know, at their own will and pull down the price of, of you know, um, mints and other things like that, that actually it, it's farmers and producers that will bear the brunt there? Yeah, well, uh, it's not that the farmers in particular will bear the brunt, but we know the impulse, listening to Eddie there, is that we know the input cost. We know what a farmer gets paid for a carcass. We don't know what happens. So what, what I'm saying is we need transparency throughout mm. the supply chain, not just at the retail end. So we need to know what the producers and the processors are actually getting in what they're adding to, to, the, uh, to, to the cost. Like the likes of uh, Procter & Gamble and Unilever, Ireland's a very small market. Mm. You know, and we're talking about here, the likes of Tesco is a relatively small company compared to these. And they have, uh, you know, their margins have increased over the last number of years. Um, so we need to have that transparency with the processors and with the, the end uh, retailers as well. You know, there is the, the lack of um, uh, transparency with retail um, profits. But again, that's very difficult to, to, uh, to legislate for that because you'll have the German discounters, for example, taking uh, product in from, from Germany, you know, at a discounted price and saying, uh, they add very little okay. to it here. So this kind of transfer of pricing, it's very difficult to monitor in the real world. Yeah, you but would. But the, the best thing th that does, you know, is, is the consumer. Because, you know, we have the ultimate uh, power to be able to shop wherever we like, shop online, shop offline, uh, shop in whatever store we like, and, and to take whatever yeah. price that we can get. It so the ultimate, you know, the competition lies with the... Uh, you know, the, the competition is there and it's a very competitive scene. And okay. th there's so many shops uh, we here have in to Ireland. Take, I suppose we do have to take the word of the, the retailers from that. How important do you think it is now, Hugh, um, for consumers to be informed, to know what they're paying for, why they're paying that price, how much the farmer is getting, yeah. you know, at the other side of things? Because there isn't a huge amount of transparency there, which leads to all allegations around price gouging, profiteering and all yeah. these things that we've heard about in the past 12 yeah, months. Yeah, no, of course, I think it's very important. And I... I think in, in terms of the steps the government's taking there, like as you said, Simon Coveney made a big song and dance about forcing the retailers to be a bit more transparent about their prices and it's got a bit quiet on that front now. I mean, I do think that was sort of a reactive move to a feeling perhaps that the government's retail form and the convening of it and the publicity around it hadn't quite delivered the commitments from supermarkets that they thought. Um, but now that prices are coming down, or at least in, in the case of one retailer, like it would be interesting to see what publicity surrounds the retail forum when it's convened again uh, later this month. Um, but also, you know, it's worth noting, uh, Eddie can probably speak to this better, that the Food Ombudsman has been set up by Charlie McConlogue. Um, you know, it's seen as an agri-food regulator. What impact is that going to have? What, what investigative powers is that going to have? Um, I know there was some debate about whether it was powerful enough, it, it had been empowered sufficiently. So, like, the government's moves, interventions in, these area, in, this, in this area, I think, is, is a little bit kind of, you know, piecemeal in some respects, but also, like, the food ombudsman is something that's been talked about for 20, 30 years. And in fairness to Charlie McConnell, he has establishment, it is, it is set up. 
Uh, but what is it going to deliver in terms of that transparency? We'll have to wait and see. It, it follows that sort of you know, consistent questioning of you know, regulators in this country mm. really having teeth and being able to... Yeah. to but, but again, it's, it's always offer, kind of... Offer value, yeah, it, ask the questions and do It's always kind of re reactive. Some, in some instances, we set up a regulator and then we don't give it... I mean, and this applies to a lot of different areas mm. of society. We set up a regulator, uh, there's a big song and dance about that, but we, it, it transpires when a controversy arises that that regulator isn't empowered to do something. I mean, SIPO is a great example of that, that the regulator to regulate politicians, not to stray off topic, but consistently we find issues with SIPO and its powers of regulation that politicians have done nothing about for years, and it usually takes a big public controversy. And we're having a controversy now about food prices and price inflation and price gouging potentially by supermarkets. Uh, and that's why we're having this discussion now about can we beef up the powers of the regulators that exist. OK, I want to briefly move on to another issue, um, the, another story that made the headlines today. Uh, Malcolm, the government availing of a scheme whereby we give money um, in order to not take refugees, that's this 1.5 uh, million euro that we're paying into a, a, a European scheme instead of taking you know, a, a promised us, uh, on our end, 350 additional international protection applicants. What's playing into this decision? It, it, it's, it's the challenge that we're facing. I mean, we've, we should be very proud of our response to uh, the Ukrainian crisis. The fact that we have taken uh, over 80,000 Ukrainians uh, into Ireland. In addition, we have about 20,000 uh, um, applicants for international protection. That is a very significant contribution that so we've made. So is this an admission now by government that... We are under pressure. We've, but we've the government reached, has always we've said... We've reached the point but that I, we can't take but, any more. But, is that, it, is that not, what this is about? I think it, at, at the moment there is an acknowledgement that there are very significant challenges that are there. We will meet, uh, and I think um, as a government and as a country, we should be proud of the fact that we have been meeting our international responsibilities uh, as part of uh, a... European agreement, um, we agreed to a set of rules around you know, how many uh, refugees and asylum seekers we would take. We can't do that at the moment. So, Everyone knows uh, we're struggling. That's not new. But uh, it shouldn't take away from the fact, you know, the numbers that we have been able uh, to accommodate. Uh, over 60,000 okay. Ukrainians are, are in accommodation provided by the state already. All right. Still quite a departure, though, and it is a new uh, move here, um, you know, that we, we, we are, in essence, putting a putting a pause on it and, and, and paying for that pause. Um, Kathleen Funcher, what does Sinn Féin make of it? Would you agree with the government decision here? No, and I think, I mean, I find myself saying the exact same thing on this topic anytime I'm on any media forum because the situation has not changed. Uh, initially, the government was saying, you know, obviously no one foresaw the, the war in Ukraine and there was an emergency situation. And it's a year and a half later and we're still in the same situation. There are still countless properties that have been pledged. Um, that haven't been followed up. And I'm not talking about individual houses. I'm talking about uh, significant sized properties, some in my constituency. And I would say most TDs would be able to tell you about a, a rake of properties that haven't been followed up. And there is no explanation ever given as to why they haven't been followed up. So, so that leads me to believe that there is far too much in the department that is dealing with children, equality, disability, integration and youth, even to say all of those topics. And there needs to be a whole government approach. They consistently tell us there is, but there certainly is not. We have okay. people sleeping in tents. It's totally unacceptable. They need to actually get everyone around the table. There is a huge amount of property there that is, has been pledged that hasn't been followed up. And that should be the very first okay. step. 
Uh, there, we'll have to leave that for now. Uh, my thanks to Malcolm Byrne, to Kathleen Funchen, to Damien O'Reilly and to Eddie Punch, who joined us on Skype. Hugh O'Connell is staying on with me as we look at the stories that got us talking this week. And we go live to Ukraine and the scene of a deadly flood there following a dam explosion. So do stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. It's been two days since a giant Soviet-era dam collapsed in Ukraine. And while Russia and Ukraine point the finger at each other, on the ground we are seeing the shocking devastation that it's caused with vast swathes of land now underwater. Well, the BBC's Ukraine correspondent James Waterhouse has been witnessing the aftermath. He joins me now via Skype. James, thanks for being with us on the programme. You're close to this flooded uh, region in, in Kherson, uh, where the Karkova dam collapsed. How damaging in it is it? What's been the fallout in terms of you know, environmental damage and importantly, the people who are living in this area? Well, I think you're starting to miss the sheer catastrophe caused by the damage of the Kapolka Dam. We're talking about a humanitarian disaster. We're talking about an environmental disaster in the midst of what is incredibly active war. I've been back and forth from here on the past six months or so. Liberation. It's the only regional captured by the Russians. And even after everything through there, all their limited freedoms and the uncertainty of occupation, and then the heavy fighting to achieve its liberation, they have this. And it's when you drive towards the river in the city, the river kind of comes to you now. And the level of water has stabilized today, but it's still a daunting height. You have road signs that are typically head height, completely submerged. And we headed out on a boat uh, across the port and where the river would normally be. And it was impossible to, to tell when we were either over land or the river itself. And this is part of a watery front line with, with Russian forces. It's an impossible task for rescue teams to get people out. And it's made all the more difficult with the daily shelling Hirson has experienced since its liberation, we came under fire ourselves with artillery coming in from the from the from the Russian side from occupied territory across the river. Uh, now both sides are accusing, accusing each other of doing the same, but we saw it for ourselves, and this is par for the course, sadly, at the moment. 
Yeah, an unbelievable challenge for those who are attempting, you know, rescue efforts in the region to be coming under fire when they're in such a difficult predicament. There are some key theories about what happened, uh, James. There are claims and counterclaims from both sides. Are we any closer to finding out who is responsible or whether this was, in fact, you know, an accident at the site? I think it's extremely unlikely to be an accident. I think it's also extremely unlikely that we'll be able to say definitively who is responsible for the destruction of the dam. But look, I think it's important to understand the forces around it. Where this dam has become a symbol of leverage, where, for example, when Russia first occupied Crimea, the southern peninsula in 2014, the Ukrainians shut it off. It cut off Crimea from a major water supply. And then last year, invading Russian forces were accused of laying it with explosives, which Moscow denied. And now we have this. So you have to balance what each side has to gain from this. I think we have to say that Russia continues to spread the full statements it does on its justification for this war. We're talking about Russian forces that are preparing for to defend against a, a Ukrainian counteroffensive, which seems to have started. Now, rivers are your friend in a military sense. They form a natural defensive barrier. And a dam, like the Kohovka Dam, would be a potential crossing point. So by blowing it, you not only take out that crossing point, that you widen the dam quite severely. But the collateral damage is huge. On the Russian side, on the occupied side, the eastern bank is severely flooded. Whole buildings are submerged. All of those defences, all of those landmines they put down are now floating around in this water. Further upstream, you've got the Euro yeah, Europe's biggest nuclear power plant. Its six reactors rely on the river's water to keep cool. There's no immediate danger, we're told at the moment, but that is also on the Russian-occupied side. And, of course, we see the scenes we do in Kherson. It is a war crime to target dams because of the disproportionate impact it has on, on the civilian population. And we are seeing that play out. James Waterhouse, uh, BBC's Ukraine correspondent, thank you for joining us uh, to bring us up to date on that situation in the Kherson region. OK, let's talk about other stories. Um, that caught our eye this week. I'm joined again by Hugh O'Connell, also uh, on the show with us tonight, is uh, the host of the For Tech's Sake podcast, Elaine Burke, and by broadcaster Rebecca Horan. You're very welcome along to the programme. Uh, I want to talk first about, um, you know, motorists, I think, are really feeling the pain this week. Tolls on the country's national road network, they're set to increase from the 1st of July. Um, we didn't know about this, but now, you know, it's landing and we already were feeling the pinch in so many different ways, Rebecca. And now another thing to add to our misery uh, is this. Uh, I mean, what, what, would you think twice about, you know, taking to the roads, taking crossing tolls or go out of your way to avoid them with this increase? I think I actually would, probably out of badness. You know, I feel like it's another pummeling and, and there's a distraction about retail going down, then petrol will go up, then there's this. There's never not something. I think in Ireland we get so many processes wrong. I mean, I know we're going to be talking about NCT later on, but this is another thing we get wrong. And this increase of 30 cent, in some cases 20 cent and then 10 there's 10 tolled roads across the country, but of course, mainly it's going to be hit in the city centre. I don't think they're going to, to do it at the port, but it's, it's an expense yeah. that people are carrying, particularly if you're commuting to work like so many people are in this country, hundreds of thousands of people. You know, there was political, as well as motors being very unhappy, Hugh, there was political outrage over all yeah. of this when it was, when it was announced. Um, I mean, will there be any attempt or any ability to stop these increases, to freeze them, given no, the, I, I don't think the so. crisis I mean, the, we're the, in? The classic political reaction 
reaction was let's kick it down the road for six months and now here we are. Um, so it's happening and I think this is a, a problem the government's going to face uh, a lot over the next few months because the tolls, excise duty is going back up incrementally over the next few months. Uh, even things like the VAT rate for the hospitality industry I think is going up at the end of the summer. So the government is going to be faced with all these acute pressures coming into the autumn and, and the October budget in particular. Uh, to sort of respond to consumers getting a bit of a pummeling. Um, you know, I think... Like we're the, clearly not out of the woods no, yet. No, totally, to, absolutely not. The inflationary not, no. pressures now we're seeing is really passing on to services and yeah, what we're paying for everything. No, we're, we're totally not out of the woods. And I think, you know, look, ultimately, this government's uh, legally binding ambition is to cut mm. emissions um, substantially by the end of the decade, by half, more than half. Mm. Uh, and part of that is getting uh, having fewer cars on the road. So, I mean, really, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly the, the policy reason behind this, but I mean, part of it, I think, is, is motivated by the idea of getting people onto public transport. But you can see in the figures that, I think it was in the census figures, that, that the number of people using cars has actually gone up since the last census yeah. uh, to get to work every day. And that's shocking in an, in an environment where we're trying to encourage fewer people uh, to get into fewer cars, more people onto public transport and more sustainable forms yeah. of transport. So uh, this is this is the difficult thing that the government's going to face and it's only going to get worse coming into its last two years in uh, office. And interestingly, briefly on this one, Elaine, like when we talked about, you know, the, the tolls people are paying most are also facing this massive NCT backlog, which means there are plenty of drivers driving around and we know people are not off the roads and people are not, uh, you know, changing their lifestyle post-pandemic or anything like that. But the, the backlog is there. But, you know, there's nothing new in this NCT backlog. I think for as long as people, you know, have been driving, they have been faced these long waiting test times, but it's really come to a head now. Yeah, I mean, it's like it has gone down, but the figures are approaching half a million in the backlog. So it's well over 400,000 in the it's backlog. It's incredible really, isn't it? Down. And it's an offence to not have your cert. And your, well, and that's, that's, that's an the big question here. It's like, how important are these checks if there's that many cars on the road in a backlog haven't been checked? And uh, apparently like NCD faults aren't a huge cause of road mm. accidents. So there's a question of the whole necessity so of the system. I'm breaking the law currently. Like, <laughs> no, but so many of we us are because we're waiting till... and we're waiting and then you go in and there's a, that's another absolute scam. It's a complete another scam on how yeah. it's run. You know, I tried to book an NCT uh, today. I was given a date of the 30th of January. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's where we're at. Now we are hearing that insurers will say, look, fair enough, look, you've booked your test, yeah. but you would wonder, will it come down? Will we see test cases? Will we see the fallout from, from all no. of this? Some people are not getting insured and that's so dangerous. Dangerous. You know, we were having um, a problem where we had to go back for a retest and we were not able to get insured on one of the cars. And there's there's all of this. And for quite minor issues, like you're talking about how actually they're not co the cause of crashes. And it's, again, another pull on resources within a family. Again, it's an expense. And again, another stress, because if you are stopped by guard, dependent on mood, dependent on mm. day, you could get three penalty points and a fine. It's just another thing. OK, um, look, the weather is good. <laughs> so it must be that time of the year. It's the leaving cert. Uh, I'm interested in talking to you about this, um, Elaine, because from um, your perspective, you know, an article about AI actually featured in the English paper, very much a sign of our times then. Do you think um, the likes of, and we've heard so much about chat GPT and, and AI, do you think that's going to transform in time the way we approach the leaving cert? the way we do those final exams, that actually, if we're trying to do an overhaul on, on this you know, traditional exam, that the likes of AI is going to change all of that potentially. So 
technically the leaving cert looks good in the face of AI because you're in a room with a piece of paper and a pen and that's all you have to put your thoughts on the page. You don't have the cushion of being able to stick a query into a generative AI and get some feedback from that and use that to work off of. But it's long-term assessment. That is the big question there because if students are submitting electronic documentation that could be copied and pasted from uh, these systems, well then that's a huge challenge for the assessors, for the teachers to kind of confirm whether this stuff is true or not. And that kind of speaks to the how we assess people in general. And that's a bigger question than just the problem with AI and the use of AI. But I do know that any teacher that I've spoken to in the last six months is quite scared by the advent of this technology. How did they detect it? How did they kind of caution their students on how to use it responsibly. It's very similar to when Wikipedia came about yeah. not long ago. And uh, there was lots of uh, concern with like academics and people uh, who teach younger students as well of like not using Wikipedia because Wikipedia can be incorrect. So don't copy and paste from there. It's the same kind of conversation that needs to be had about this stuff because it's wildly incorrect a lot of the time. It's not about generating answers. It's just generating statistically likely words yeah, that follow each and other. And the question is, again, is technology, you know, running ahead of us when we say we're going, we're finally going to overhaul this traditional exam and suddenly, you know, the, the robots have come into play here. Um, does it still make you break out in a sweat though, Rebecca? The, the, the idea of the leaving it search? It did for a long time. It did. I mean, I still think it's it's an exam steeped in privilege um, and obviously academic academia. And then, of course, have tried to do this continuous. I always thought the A-levels was such a, you know, preference. Um, I had a tricky time with the Leaving Cert. I did fine in the end, but I remember going back at 20-something years of age and sitting in a, in a hall in Rathfarnham with some sweaty 17 and 18 year olds to prove to myself that I could do All maths. of you sweating. Yeah, all of us sweating well, to do it again. Why did you go back and Pride. decide in your 20s to sit a Leaving Cert Because I got on again. with my you, life. You didn't need to, No, I studied journalism. I got on with my life, but I remember being so early disappointed with how I'd done in maths. And I can blame the teachers um, who were focused on rugby uh, scores at the time, or I can blame everything else, but uh, I probably inherently thought I was bad at it and had convinced myself there was something wrong and I was just probably not focused on it, wasn't giving it my all. And I made that decision because I wanted to prove to myself. So I got this wonderful woman I worked with to grind me, um, this great woman called Laura Daly, and I did it. I didn't tell many people. And I went and sat with them and it was hard to do that, to go back and do it. And I can tell you the I've never felt more joy, honest to God, compared to anything I've achieved in my life than going back and wow, seeing that. that sounds Honestly, really cathartic. Yeah. Although, yeah. you know <laughs> what, I don't know. I always really admire people who, um, you know, well, well, had to maybe for some reasons or another or wanted to repeat the leaving cert. Yeah. My um, wife was one of those people and I, I still can't get my head around yeah. it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that takes amazing courage and strength and probably therapy. Um, yeah. So fair play to them. But good luck to all the leaving surges um, out there. We've lots more to talk about. So uh, do stay with us. Um, see you after the break. Hugh O'Connell, Elaine Burke and Rebecca Horn are still with me. Uh, let's talk about another big story of the week. Canadian wildfires have plunged New York into a smoky haze. Uh, just before I came in there, I spoke to climatologist John Sweeney. Um, I started by asking him if this is another example of impending climate disaster. It is indeed, Claire, 
And we've become used to uh, seeing these kind of apocalyptic scenes from places like Indonesia and even from the west coast of the United States over the years. But this is the first time really that it has happened on this scale uh, on the east coast and especially in, in, in New York. And it's a reminder in a way that the streams of climate change related weather phenomena um, are also creeping into the developed world in, big, in a big way. Now Canada has been the source of this one and uh, Canada has gone through a very dry spring and parts of it have been in drought for the past three years. And what we've seen therefore is a, a tinderbox ready to catch fire in many parts. And so lightning strikes have really been very much more able to set fire to the forest mm. than they have in previous years. Uh, and this is, this is the problem, essentially. Uh, in terms of the health implications of this polluted air, how, how bad is it for people who've, who have to obviously work in places like in New York, commute and stay outside? Well, we know that uh, particulates are not very good for our lungs. And we know that even in Ireland, uh, about 1,300 people a, a year die from particulate pollution. But it is it's perhaps even the stuff that we don't see in this particular episode that's the major problem. We have some defence mechanisms to protect our health from very coarse particles. Uh, we, we cough, we have mucus, we have reflexes. Um, uh, but when we get down to the very fine scales like we have here of 2.5 microns, then you're looking at something where you could fit 100 of those particles on a human hair. And that means it can get right into our lungs. We know that this particular episode is so bad in New York, for mm -hmm. example, that um, it was equivalent if you were in New York yesterday, breathing air for the whole day. It was all it was equivalent to smoking about a half packet of cigarettes. That's the kind of scale that we're looking at here. Unbelievable, and and you you get that impression from from the pictures as uh, uh, as you're saying that we are seeing coming from New York and elsewhere. I want to ask you about this latest emissions warning um, that we are we are hearing about data. Um, that has been released from leading Irish and UK climatologists on, on just how, how, how we are seeing global warming now at an all-time high. Just how worrying is this? Yes, the, the report yesterday from the Bonn uh, meeting, which occurs between the COPs meetings, has confirmed that we're now seeing accelerated warming, warming by about 0.2 degrees per decade. Uh, we've already warmed up by 1.15 or so since pre-industrial times. And the, the risk of that really is that we're now approaching tipping points where we can expect to see things happening that we might not be able to recover very easily from. My thanks to Professor John Sweeney there. Um, OK, I want to bring you another story um, that we heard about today, and it's a big new launch um, from Apple. It's the Vision Pro. Uh, so let's take a look. This is the first major new product launch uh, from the tech company since the Apple Watch. Uh, here's what they had to say about uh, their new toy. So in the same way that Mac introduced us to personal computing and iPhone introduced us to mobile computing, Apple Vision Pro will introduce us 
to spatial computing. Spatial computing. Okay, this is uh, Tim Cook at the launch of an augmented reality AR set called Vision Pro. Elaine, take us through this. It won't be even available now until next year. So they're really teeing up um, um, this uh, new three and a half, three thousand uh, euro starts, headset. Starts at three thousand four hundred and ninety nine dollars deal. But yeah. even, though, even though I was saying this is this is new, it it doesn't it doesn't feel very new. We, we've had these sort of headsets before. They haven't really taken off. And even the use of the term spatial computing is Tim Cook definitely avoiding using the term metaverse mm. because that's been co-opted by a rival company. They've rebranded entirely around it and they've also released a number of VR headsets that do similar things that this one does. Uh, so this is big deal because Apple are doing it and Apple are known as product design leaders and uh, also known for, you know, taking over a market. The iPhone did what the BlackBerry couldn't with its touchscreen and, and those kind of innovations. And it does look like some slick tech is involved here. The uh, reports from people who are mm. on the ground in Cupertino got a look at it. Um, how, uh, how, does it how does it work and what, what does it actually do? So what's kind of a big deal about it is that it has this pass-through uh, augmented reality system where you can have immersive VR where you're surrounded by the picture that you're viewing in the screen, but you can also have a, a way to kind of bring the room that you're in into what you're viewing. So if someone approaches you and you're in an immersive uh, segment, they can actually be seen uh, in your vision. They can also see your eyes, but it's not your eyes. It's like a deep fake of your eyes. And that's actually one of the most advanced pieces of technology in this. It's actually going to create deep fake avatars of people and project them outwards. And use you can use them in video calls. So there's some interesting tech under the hood, but the headset itself, I don't know who wants it. And like, it's not like a smartphone where like that makes sense that I can do things on the go that I used to be, had to be tethered to a desktop to do. I don't know what the use case is for this. I did think that they were going to go heavily on the entertainment side. But aside from having a partnership with Disney that didn't really detail anything that they're going to do with the headset, just said Disney is here. They didn't really yeah. say anything that they're doing it's strange in that space. Because, um, and it all sounds a bit dy dystopian when you're, you know, painting, you know, creating AI generated images of other people wearing these headsets. It's all, it's all, it's all a little strange. Um, Rebecca, do you think it's interesting <laughs> that they brought entertainment into it? Yeah. Um, and yet, it will involve people sitting on their own mm. or together in rooms with individual yes. headsets on. Yes. It doesn't guess, sound like much again, fun. Again, another way for Apple to disconnect us from each other and make mm. sure we become addicted to something. Um, and, and that's not from actual engagement or being present in the moment. It's from sitting there. And entertainment's such a funny word, sitting in a, in a lonely room. It seems like a gaming um, trick, actually, like a gaming gadget. Perhaps if you were interested in that, this would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, but I think to walk around the streets FaceTiming or watching a movie or I prefer my Chanel Sonny's. I just don't. I think it's just another thing, another all, gimmick. It's so expensive. Spending years through the pandemic living through screens was that we want more screens and strapped to our faces. Mm, that's obviously that's what, what we need. We yeah, that's the big question. When they talked about using it in enterprise, like would you, um, Hugh, well, it's €3,000, it's a hefty price point, but would you pay to wear this headset? No. Not right. I mean, could, no. Do you, you, you see yourself using it in a, in a work capacity? No, absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> to enhance walking your around Lancaster House with a with a Dior headset. You'd be the talk of the town. I, yeah, I think people would just look at me very strangely. I mean, I think that, like the entertainment aspect of it, you know, the idea of what being immersively watching a movie, kind of, mm. I'm quite fascinated by that. Wouldn't mind trying that. But I wouldn't wear it out in public. I wouldn't wear it on the bus or on the train or around Leinster House or anything like that. Uh, and I think, I suppose the difference really, isn't it, is that, you know, we've always had watches, we, you know, mm. mobile telephones existed before the 
before the iPhone came along. Whereas this is basically asking us to take one of the most important facets of a human being, mm. their eyes, and cloud them, put them behind the screen, mm. an immersive uh, headset, uh, and just disconnect from the world. Mm. And that, I, I'm not sure people are ready for that. Okay, we'll come back in a year's time. Yeah. And we shall see. <laughs> and we'll all be wearing them. We'll all be wearing them. <laughs> that is it from us. My thanks to all our panel tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. So you can find us on Instagram and on TikTok. Uh, but from all of us here, good night. Take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.